So why don't we begin with prayer? This is a, a uh, short blessing for catechetical or prayer meetings from the, from the Roman ritual. Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Through this meeting, Jesus himself has spoken to us. We should now, therefore, give thanks to him who has revealed to us the mysterious design that for ages was hidden in God. Since our task is to conform our lives to the word we have heard, before leaving, let us raise our minds and hearts to God, praying that he may guide us through the Holy Spirit to a fuller possession of the truth and give us the power always to do what is pleasing to him. My brothers and sisters, let us ask God, our all-powerful Father, to take our steps always in the way of his commandments. We thank you and bless you, Lord our God. In times you spoke in many varied ways through prophets, but in this, the final age, you have spoken through your Son to reveal to all nations the riches of your grace. May we who have met to ponder the scriptures be filled with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding and pleasing you as we should in all things. May we bear fruit in every good work. We ask this through Christ our Lord. God, the Father of mercies, has sent his Son into the world through the Holy Spirit who will teach us all truth May he make us messengers of the gospel and witnesses to his love in the world. Amen. May Almighty God bless us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I was asked to give a short introduction about myself. And so, in fact, the introduction is actually part of the talk. And in this introduction is, is something I, I like to actually use with the teens. So my name is Deacon Michael O'Connor. I am three months from being ordained to the, to the presbyterate for the Diocese of San Diego, and so I'm studying up at Mount Angel. Uh, born and raised Catholic, uh, nominally for the most part, and then in college is when I really came back to the faith. Uh, funny enough, I went to, uh, I got a full ride to UC Berkeley where I double majored in uh, neurobiology and US history, because if you don't double major, it's because you're lazy. Uh, and so uh, after I, I had gone through that, I went back to San Diego and got a job for five years in academic laboratories at the University of California, San Diego, where I was doing a lot of novel drug development for schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorders, and then using uh, transcranial near-infrared lasers for ischemic stroke treatment. And I tell you all this because it is exactly as impressive as it sounds. But at 27, I left all that in order to follow possible calling, to discern a call. And so here I am, 32 years old, and I am in the last few months of my, I guess you would say, uh, formation as a priest, although it never ends, the last few months here, and I'm getting another few degrees in divinity and sacred theology and all this education I've been studying for my whole life, and this is what I tell my teens. I tell them I'm smarter than them. I don't mean I'm smarter than each of them. I mean I'm smarter than all of them put together. And this usually gets a rise out of them, but there's something true about it. And, and I tell them that because I've studied philosophy, because I've studied theology, because I studied the sciences, I have a way at 
speaking in a way that could be convincing. And I could use logic to say, this is why believing in God is, is right. I could easily sit them down and say, you can't. I could put you into this logical trap where you're not getting out on your own. And I can say, see, you have to believe in God unless you're unreasonable. But you know, there's someone who's even smarter than me who can walk in who doesn't believe in God and could do the exact same thing. And he could undo all that stuff. And then someone smarter than him, or smarter than her. So you can keep going back and forth. And so you're left in this position of, all right, oh, who is the last person who's, who's told me what to think? That's a really dangerous trap. Who's the last person to tell me what to think? And so suddenly the question becomes, okay, so you're about to devote your entire life to this that you can't prove is real. What's the difference? Why is this so true for you? You know, the very simple reason is because I've met him. You have to meet Jesus Christ. In order to truly delve into this faith, there needs to be this encounter. And if you look at Deus Deus Caritas S13 uh, from Saint, excuse me, from Pope Benedict the 16th, he talks about how Christianity isn't this lifestyle, but really it's this new direction in life that's spurred on by this, this profound encounter of a really real person. So, you know, it, it's very easy to, 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 to force people into thinking what you think, but really it's about and that's our job as facilitators, as ministers, as disciples, is to, to facilitate a relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's this young woman, I was in teaching RCA two years ago, and, uh, and she was kind of just thinking about Catholicism. She was researching it, and, and I think she found a lot of the questions and our, our answers to these thoughtful questions very, very satisfying. But when we would go to mass, uh, a lot of the other, a lot of the other candidates and catechumenates would participate, and during the Eucharistic prayer they would kneel. And but I, I noticed she just sat there, always just watching, just always from the outside looking in. And I remember thinking, okay, that's that's okay for now. And as we get closer and closer to to, to the Easter vigil, where where that commitment is made. I think we're about six weeks away and I, I come up to her and I say, I don't think you're ready. I don't think you can be ready. I think, and it, it, was, it was because she and I were having sometimes two, three hour conversations at, at, at the end of mass on Sunday, just hanging out, just talking. She'd asked me to explain this passage. She's reading the Vatican II documents, wants to know what this means. But she was stuck and there's this, old, there's this idea that in order to know our Lord, you need to love him. And, either, and in order to love him, you need to know him. And so suddenly you're stuck in this really tough position, this circle. And really the only way into it is really to encounter a real person. You know, I told her, you could do all this studying. But at the end of the day, I wonder, I wonder if he's just this nice set of propositions for you. Like he's an idea that you'd like, that you hope is real. Like he's just this person back then who had good ideas for it. And it feels nice. If that's it, then what are we really doing here? You're not, you're not going to get anywhere. God is 
by very nature, he is relationship in, in, in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here's a communion of being. That's his very essence, his being. And in communion and loving relationship with one another. And if you're made in his image and likeness, boy, you better be ready for relationship too. And so for her, when I said, I don't think you're going to make it, she had this brave little smile on and I just felt so bad for crushing her. And I said, I don't think you've met him. And she said, no, I don't know what you mean. I said, you know, I know you go to mass and you sit there, but have you actually spent time with our Lord in the Eucharist? It was something profound in my own journey, and I guess I put that onto her, thinking, you know what, the Eucharist is going to fix this relationship problem. And she said, no. I said, well, we got a little adoration chapel here at St. Edward's. I can give you the code, and maybe one day you can go in. And uh, so I give her the code. This isn't the real code, but for the sake of the story, it's 261. I said, uh, you know, go, go in there, 261, if you, if, when you're, whenever you're ready. After the next week, I had asked her if she'd gone in. She said, no. I said, okay, okay. The next week, I asked her if she'd gone in, and, and, and she said, yeah. She said, yes. I asked her, was, was anyone else in there? She said, no. I said, okay. How about the tabernacle? Was it open? She said, what's that? I said, a little box. She said, no, it wasn't open. I said, well, did you open it? She said, yeah. And I left it at that, and we went back, and we started talking about other things. And, and it was later that week, she texted me Wednesday morning, and there was a time. She just put a little timestamp, And I said, uh, I saw it. It was like 6 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday, and so I didn't ask any questions. And so the next week, weekend when I saw her, I asked, what, what's this about? She said, that's when I decided to become Catholic. I said, oh, yeah? You know, what, what made this happen? She said, 261. She was in this adoration chapel writing poems to our Lord, who was so real for her that, that she couldn't help but say, I have no other way to Jesus. I, I want this way to Jesus Christ. I want the Eucharist. Because I'm, I'm looking at her thinking, we're six weeks away from the Easter Vigil, and you think your first encounter of our Lord in the Eucharist is going to be receiving him? I mean, that's a nice idea, but you gotta, you got to meet him. You gotta, there's got to be something before such an intimate, intimate possession of one another before he transforms you. And I think that's what we're, what we're doing here, right? I, I asked about a, a topic for this meeting, and I was given the idea, youth ministry with an impact, engaging the youth and the parents. And, and if this relationship is what we're about, and it's, it's something so real to us, we're left with this question, well, what do we need to do? We need to witness I love this adoration chapel in the back. I got to see it for the first time. And there's a quote from St. Jerome who's, who talks about why we love the martyrs. The martyrs, we love them because they love him. And through him, we witness. Through, through these martyrs, we witness him. It's the same for you and I. Witness. I mean, the etymology of this word is, is a direct translation of martyrion, Greek for 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 someone who gives evidence, one who testifies. A martyr is a witness. 
And so when you see the martyr, you are seeing someone testify to the truth that they are holding. And that it's for this reason, I don't know if this ever happens to you, if you're ever an extraordinary minister of the Blessed Sacrament, how many people come up and they don't say amen? It's frustrating. Or they say something else, thank you, deacon. That's one that gets me, thank you, deacon. And really, that isn't the moment to, to, to correct their behavior. Uh, to be honest, I'm trying to find a way to fit it into my next homily because it's, it's maddening. But the idea is, amen. It's not even just a yes, I believe. It's a 100%. I'll put my life on this. I'll put my life to the fact that this is the body of Christ. Blood of Christ, a, oh, absolutely. 100%, I believe. That's a martyr, one who can say Amen. And so that's what we need to be. There's that old adage, more lessons are caught than taught. You know that's true. St. Francis of Assisi preached the gospel, always use words if necessary. And really, anyone who's influenced your journey with Jesus Christ, anyone who's positively influenced it, witnessed to Jesus Christ. He's someone who, he's someone who looked like Jesus Christ, not physically necessarily, but had the love and the Spirit moving him in a way that looked like our, Jesus, our Lord, Jesus Christ. See, it's a real relationship for you, and it will be for them. You're not going to be able to build up faith without your own. There's an old, uh, there's an old Latin legalistic term. It's uh, nemo, nemo dat quad non habit. So. It's also essential to the formation of a Christian disciple, and it's something especially important for the Catholic priest. Nemo dat quod don habit, that which you do not have, you cannot give. And so, if this relationship needs to be real for them, it needs to be real for us. And it isn't even, it, 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 it so much goes beyond real, it goes to authentic. That's a word we think means real, but it's, it's even more. Authenticity is about trustworthiness and reliability. I am so, I'm so believing in the truth of this, that this is reflecting the truth and the reality of the world, that I'm willing to navigate my life by it. And so what do we need to be for these parents and teens, and what do parents need to be for their teens is authentic. Does this mean, does that mean does that mean being like them and knowing them? It, yes and no. One of the things that I, I get <coughs> kind of frazzled by, or, or, or it's, it's a trap I don't fall into anymore, but it's something I think a lot of you, younger uh, youth coordinators and a lot of volunteers fall into, is this idea that I need to talk like the teens. And it's really not true at all. Should, should you understand some of their vocabulary? Yes. I mean, we, we have guys here who are young enough that you share kind of their lingo. But really, and that's good, but really they want someone who's just real and someone who's authentic in this is, this is who I'm calling you to be. There's a principle in child development. I forget the name of it, but uh, it's this idea that when you naturally, when we talk to kids, to smaller children, we speak just above their intellect in order to kind of pull them up. And so we'll use, 
words or, or, or ideas and maybe we'll explain concepts that are just a little out of reach for the child, but we'll stretch them. You know, it's going to be the same thing about your authentic witness to, to the gospel. So that's, so, so, so that the heroic things, and I love these movie posters here about Passion of Christ, Lord of the Rings, Narnia. We love the hero who does these miraculous things, but the heroic things could be just those things just a little bit out of reach. Uh, there's this idea in virtue, in virtue, in teaching virtue, uh, that the virtues you understand are the ones that, that you've, you've witnessed and then they're, they're the ones you've received. Like I only know kindness because someone has shown me kindness and was kind to me. And so here's, this, here's an idea. Here's a kind of far out idea. What if those virtues that come easy to you, because there are some virtues that are very easy for, for individuals. Uh, maybe for you, courage is remarkably, uh, it's just something very natural to you. What if you really, really emphasize that and you're, you're courageous about how you speak about the gospel, how you stand for, for church teaching? So things like abortion. You know, it's kind of bold in some, in some areas. Portland, for example, to go out there and say, I am, I'm pro-life. It takes a courage. And maybe that's your strong suit. And so in people seeing you courageous, they learn courage. And so maybe patience is one of the ones that's very difficult for you. It's for me. Patience is a difficult one. Certainly don't let that fall out the bottom. But what if we emphasize the, the, the virtues that we really encapsulate well because just they're God-given and natural for us? It's really going to be what changes the world. I really think that's there. You see, our Lord does this thing where he also tends to, to, to speak in a way that leads and, and I like, I always like the example of the woman at the well in John 4. He leads this woman to see that the, the thing she really needs, the living water that she needs is him. She starts with this very literal understanding when he, he says, you know, give, he says, I'm going to give you water that will quench your thirst and you'll never thirst. And she says, you don't even have a bucket. She's starting to put this idea of the living water is somewhere in this well. And little by little, she, she's guided into to understanding he is the living water to the point where now she, it, it becomes a mission for her to share that she has understood and witnessed that the living water is Jesus Christ, that eternal water that quenches thirst. And, and that's, that's what we're trying to do by our own authentic discipleship. And so you've got to ask yourself, you got to ask yourself, well, because you, you and I both know that these, these teens, these youth, they're not stupid. They're not stupid. And they notice a lot. And they're looking. And, they, and the, that's why they notice a lot. They're looking. My first question when I, when I got to this point in my reflection was, uh, okay, what are they looking for? But I don't think that's the best question. I think we need to go beyond this. What do they want to see? There's something, I think, deep in the human heart that knows what it wants. There's this idea in philosophy that you can only, you can only want something you know. Some, somewhere written in your heart, you know, in, 
written in the very walls of your heart is the law of the Lord and that's the word of God that's Jesus Christ there's something in there that wants to see him and so you have this opportunity to show Jesus Christ and it's it's kind of getting a little bit I don't want to step on my own homily this Sunday but it's the, it's the difference between mimicry and imitation Mimicry is, is, is often just having the externals. You can have a, a mockingbird sound exactly like something, but it's something external. There's not the same internal spirit. There isn't the same mechanism within. And so for the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk about how human, how human Jesus was and how he got humanity right, like how he lived humanity right and it breaks down into five five topics and I'll, I'll outline them in case I can't get to all of them the first one is a human human is free the human human thinks well the human human is holy the human human relates well and the human human will show people God A human, human is free. Uh, and and here, here I want to make sure we understand what freedom is. Because it's really, it's, it's one of the words really misunderstood. Freedom is too often understood these days as, as license. And it's the idea that I need to have as many available choices open to me at all times in order to be truly free. And what, what that leaves you with is a real lack of direction. Where it leaves you is paralyzed. There's a psychological study that talks about, uh, about it's, it's looking at consumerism, and it talks about the pressures of making the right choice, and that when you have so many options in front of you, the pressure increases to make the right choice to the point where you, you're, you're already stressing about a choice you haven't made yet to the point where you don't make a choice at all. And that, that really misses the point of true freedom. Freedom is about excellence. Freedom is about getting somewhere. And so you have a direction. And I, I like this image because it, it always clicks for me and it's the way I think about it. It's this idea that you're in a hallway and it just goes. And there are doors. And at some point, you have to walk through one of the doors. And once you walk through that door, you're in another hallway with more doors. And, and, and it's this idea, it's this idea that, that I went through with my brother. Uh, he was struggling with committing to anything. And really freedom is in commitment. That's, that's kind of what I'm driving at. But he was struggling with the idea of why he should even get married. And I, I told him, he's got the idea somewhat right. When you say yes to something, you, you're saying no to every other thing in the world. When you say, when you ask to marry a woman, you're saying, I choose you and every other girl, no. And when she says yes, she's saying yes to you and no to every other man in the world. That's, that's what happens. And I think in that yes is that movement from one hall into the next. And suddenly new choices are available to you. 
and you're moving somewhere with a purpose. You have a direction. And I think that, that, that fulfillment of a destiny, of that movement towards a, a potential being actualized and realized, there's something very true to the human heart there. That I have a purpose and it's being met in finding and loving and knowing and, and being with the Lord. That's where these doors are getting me. True freedom requires commitments. It, it's not about self-boundaries. And I think one of the, the, the troubling anthropologies of today is this idea of this idea that I get to stand where I am and I get to put up borders, boundaries between all the things that don't please me, things that are difficult, things that are unpleasant, things that are scary. And when I do that, when I'm doing that, I feel like I have control and I have this invulnerability. But what I find myself doing is, is isolating myself, if anything. And so instead of being able to make decisions, I'm stuck in this, this cell. And suddenly the only thing that's real is me. I was uh, at a retreat with teens recently and, and one of the young men there wasn't Catholic, but his best friend was. And so he said, you know what, I'm going to come and I'm going to explore Catholicism. He's looking for spirituality. And uh, he was looking for someone to kind of walk him through the idea of uh, the, 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 the content of the Catholic faith. And I said, okay, I think I, I'm qualified enough to do that and answer questions. And uh, by the end of it, he comes up to me uh, out the, on his way out the door and says, you know, the Catholicism is great, but I don't know if it's for me. So, what, what do you mean? And he said, uh, it doesn't fit with my truth. My truth, I said. And, that, and that's very, that's what happens when you get in that box where I'm the, I, and I, I said, I don't, I don't think you, you're going to be able to become a Christian. You already have a God and it's you. Uh, and, I, and I told him, you know, it's a, it's a very dangerous way to live. It's what got us in kind of the mess we're in now. This idea that uh, when, when I'm in the box, I get to decide what has value and what doesn't have value. And so things that are inconvenient to me, like say a baby or old people, things that don't have value to me, I can throw away. And I say, you know, as a 16 year old man, the world's going to look at you and say, you have a lot of value. You have so much potential. You have potential to produce. You have potential to consume. But in about 20 years, your parents are going to be old. And they're going to look at them and say, they don't have much value. And they might have value to you. But the world's going to say, well, we can throw them away. And I said, you know, you're finding yourself in a very, very dangerous place where you're, you're not free. See, true freedom requires commitment. And, and, and that's, that's vulnerability. That's saying you, as other, have a value intrinsic to you. And I don't get to take that away, but I have to be open to relating to you. I don't get to impose anything on you. But we can hurt each other and we can love each other. We can do great things and we can do really horrible things, but we can do something. And ideally, we're moving from one hallway to the next, making progress to God. 
And so I think this really reflects Jesus' humanity. Jesus, Jesus in the garden. I always go back to Luke 22. He's, uh, Luke takes the time to, to just show how alone Jesus is. He's in a garden. A garden, think about where, where does the Bible start? Where does it end? It, says, it ends in a garden. And in both times, gardens are for lovers. It's for romance. It's for relationship. And somehow Jesus is in a garden. The exact opposite. So alone. And then he, he, he's given the cross. And here's his opportunity to relate. And he meets every single human dysfunction. Fleming Rutledge talks about how, how in the cross... Jesus is, is confronted with every single sin and he bears it to the point where St. Paul says he becomes sin itself. How humanly open is that? How radically available and how contrary to this idea where I can put up walls. The human human is very free, but very vulnerable. The human human thinks well. You know, I told you about that young man at the retreat and what I was trying to get to him was how to think. With teenagers, one of the scariest things is there's so many things in the world trying to tell them what to think. What is cool, what is fun, what is fashionable, what is normal, what is attractive, what is good, what is true. There's so many things in the world saying, this is what it is. And so they're bombarded with content. This is what you are to think without anyone ever teaching them how to think. You need to, we need to be the ones who help them think well. And that's what the church does. The church is a saint maker. Why? Because it is the church. She is very invested and concerned with the formation of consciences. I don't tell, as someone who's a minister, who's becoming a professional minister, a lot of people come to me asking me what, what, what to do. And one of the things I don't do is tell them what to do. I was a chaplain intern in Orange County, and a woman, I was called in by a nurse, and I met this woman and she and her husband had just come into the hospital, uh, into the ICU. And after an hour, uh, his friends, his best friend and, and that man's wife show up. And so there's a small group of us. And the doctor comes in and says, ma'am, your husband is experiencing 100% kidney failure, 100% liver failure, 90% uh, lung failure, 90% heart failure, 90% brain failure. And he's, he's just going through this litany of this, this man's not well. And he ends with the only thing that's keeping him alive is that we're pumping this, this drug through him with this machine. And she turns to me and says, what do I do? I just met you. I just heard what this doctor said. I, I, mean, I, could, I only know his name because I could read it on his coat. What do I do? If you're asking me what's morally permissible, okay, but what do I do? I'm not going to tell you what to do. But we can walk through the decision-making together. 
at the end of Mass a few weeks ago, a man comes up to me, he says, I'm the patriarch of my family. I'm the, God, I'm the grandfather of this, of this young man. Everyone respects my, my decisions. And it's important that I'm at family functions. But my, my, my grandson is marrying another man and they want me to be there. Do I go? I don't even know your name. I don't know, I've never met your son or grandson. I don't know the rest of your family. I don't know what it would mean. He thinks, oh, well, it's an in, uh, it would be an endorsement of, of, of something I don't agree with because of the Catholic teaching. Okay. I didn't tell him what to do, but I said, you, you, let's, let's, let's talk it through. What does it mean? Would, would, would it be okay if he just went to reception and not to the actual marriage? And so the church isn't out to live anyone's life, and neither should we. You're going to see a lot of your teens and, and, and a lot of the parents that just aren't living life as well as they could, partly because they're, what, they, what they think has been fed to them by someone else, and, and it's not how, the, to, how they think. And, and that's, that's, that's the difference. It's content or it's conscience. Going back to that young man, you know, I, he was part of my small group, and I told him, it, when it comes to what the Catholic Church teaches, there's no question where we stand on abortion, contraception, gay marriage, all these issues, these contra, controversial issues, euthanasia. There's no question what, you know, where we stand on these things, but nobody, very few people know why. And what I'm not, I'm not, I can walk you through why we teach it, and, and that would be fruitful for us. But at the same time, you need to have the faculties to walk that, that way too. I'm not going to drag you through why we think the way we think. And so the human human knows how to think well. And that's what we need to be pushing because God doesn't, he, he doesn't need slaves, He needs sons and daughters. He wants sons and daughters, saints with a direction who choose him, not slaves. And that's the beauty of Christianity. Through Jesus Christ, I am an adopted, beloved son of God the Father. And so are you. Through Jesus Christ, you have sonship, daughtership with the eternal Father. And that's what he wants. And that, needs, that, that, that means I need an intellect and I need a, a reasoning capacity, that God-given reasoning capacity, to move and choose rightly. That's, what the, that's one of the things about, what, what does the image and likeness of God mean? It's about perfection. I'm in the image of God because I have within me the capacity to become perfect. That's the image of God. That's not something you lose. Through Jesus Christ, we have we have this. But I'm also in his likeness, which is perfection in the movement toward being more and more like him. And that, that, that's, that's when the human human is holy. That's our next section. The human human is holy. The human person is sacred because they are made in the image and likeness of God. And so I don't get to put up walls and say that's what has value. No, that value is given. 
That's God-given. The human person is holy and, and creation is meant to be holy and too often it's profane and it's, it's made less than. You are sacred. Creation is sacred. The things that we, the things that move us to God are sacred. That's one of the things that, that drives me nuts about sexual morality is often it's looked at as, as, as this crutch or this, this hindrance, it's this obstacle. This proper sexuality is, is a way towards true sacredness. Sex is sacred. It makes me holy if, I, if, I, if my sexuality is rightly ordered. I relate well. That's get, that gets us to our next point. But before that, the, the universal call to holiness, Lumen Gentium chapter 5. Lumen Gentium chapter 5, it talks about the universal call to holiness. And one of the biggest driving points in this section is about living out vocation. I'm often asked, why, why become a priest? And it's always just a funny thing to me. Uh, and it, it, I, my response is, is usually, I think this is the only way I know how to love. You're meant to love. This is Therese of Lisieux. Everyone's vocation is love. Well, priesthood is how I'm being conformed by love, that is Jesus Christ, to be love, that is Jesus Christ, in order to show the world Jesus Christ, who desperately need him. And it's the same for married couples. And if we can get kids to believe, like, you have a grand adventure in front of you. Christianity is not for wimps. It is a, it's an awesome adventure. And, if we, and I don't want to call it sell, but if we can present it this way as, 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 a, as a true challenge, as an opportunity for greatness, a freedom for excellence, then I think we're on to something. The human person is called to, if God is love and the human person is called to be love, boy, I mean, we, we better know how to relate like God. The human human relates well. This is how we journey through each hall home. And so I'd like to talk about communication quickly. Uh, Bishop Emeritus Brom from San Diego, and I don't know if he's the first to say this, I doubt it, but uh, he says that all good communication breaks down into four simple statements. And this is a prayer. I hope you remember these four simple statements, and it's a prayer. If you ever see me genuflecting before Mass or, or any time, this is a prayer that I actually usually say. The four phrases that are key to good communication are, one, I love you. Two, I'm sorry. Three, please help me. Four, thank you. I love you. I'm sorry. Please help me. Thank you. These are very simple words, but deeply powerful. And all good communication, all good relationships says these things in, in varying amounts at all times. Because you, can, you, you stop and you think about it, sin says the exact opposite. And so I love you for who you are. Forgive me for what I've done. Please help me so I don't do it again. I want to relate to you. 
And thank you for the things you do. I love people for who they are. I thank them for what they do. One of the, the, the frustrating things about teens, and I've been working with teens for too long some days, uh, is how often they say I'm sorry. And it's usually just passing, and it, it, it seems to have very little meaning. But here, here is why I'm sorry is so powerful, and how because I'm sorry is so powerful, there needs to be an equally powerful response, and there's only one proper response. I'm sorry means I value our relationship. I know that what I've done upset that. And now I'm sorry, I don't want to ever do it again. This is too important, this relationship. This you and me is too important. I don't want to lose that. I'm sorry. And so the only proper response is I forgive you. And I forgive you is profoundly powerful in that it says, I don't need to forget because I can't. To be honest, you remember hurts. And I'm glad that you recognize how important this relationship is. And I, I, I appreciate that you promised not to do it again. And here's where I forgive you gets really, it, it accomplishes so much. I forgive you says, I won't hold this between us anymore. This issue is a dead issue. And so when I forgive you, I won't hold it against you. Is it something that happened? Absolutely. Can you take it away? No. But here it is, it's done for us. And so that's how important it is to say these words back and forth. The same thing with thank you. Thank you is, is one that, that often gets minimalized. Too many people respond to thank yous with, it's no big deal, don't sweat it, whatever. Don't, don't minimalize like us working together. We're cooperating in something grand. We're cooperating in charity. In the little thank yous are Christ present. And so you're welcome. I think you're welcome is, is the response we need. This is good communication. Saying I love you, not just in deed, but it, I mean, say it in the words. I mean, think about your own father, your own fathers. I mean, how many times have they said I love you? If you're a dad, I mean, how many times have you said I love you to your son or your daughter? There's something really healing to the whole person in that. And so I encourage good communication to be both implicit and explicit in these words. Because sin does the opposite. Sin ruptures relationship. The church has known this from the beginning. It's, it ruptures relationship with God. It ruptures relationship with other. But it, 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 it's more insidious than that. It ruptures relationship with creation. So it, my environment suddenly becomes isolating. And it ruptures relationship with self. One of the, one of the hardest things... When you, see, when you see people who don't know how to be tender, and, and I fall into this trap, there's a good chance that they're really hard on themselves. If they don't know how to forgive others, there's a good chance they're not very kind to themselves. And so in relationship, I'm, I, I'm, I'm praying that you communicate these four things not only to God and to others, but to yourself. And, and even to the, how you relate to creation. 
Because sin speaks the opposite. It disrupts relationship. Instead of saying, I don't, instead of saying, I love you, it says, I don't love you. I'm not going to do the best for you. That's what love is. I willingly choose to do the good for you. Sin says the opposite. It says, I don't need you. I don't need your help. I'm not grateful for you. I don't need this relationship. I'm not sorry when I hurt you. Sin speaks really ugly things when you stop and you say the words. These are things you would never say to people, I, I hope. And they're not things you would say to people you care about and people in your life. And yet we can say them to God. And yet we do say them to other people. That's, what, that's, how, that's why confession is so amazing. It doesn't simply reconcile you to God. That's great. That's, that's super important. But through the ministry, through the ministry of the church, may God give you peace, pardon and peace, and I absolve you from your sins. It's a reconciliation with community. That's why one of the, the troubling things about, you know, why I'm, I have a Protestant friend, when she sins, she just goes to God. Why do you go to a priest? I go to a priest and I go to God. And I'm healed in, in every fashion. The human human relates well because the human human is meant for relationship. He's made in the image of relationship. And for that reason, the human human will show people God. You're made in his image and like this, you are perfect being perfected. And so, this is what people should see. I love the, the transcendental properties of God. Are, uh, there's four of them. Uh, beauty, goodness, truth, and unity. Beauty, goodness, truth, unity. And one of my, what, what, often when I'm reading about, when I'm reading scripture and, and the gospel in particular, <coughs> I love to look for this pattern in how Jesus meets people. I was once asked, what's my favorite phrase in the Gospels? And it actually comes from Mark 6.34. So at, at this point, people are following Jesus and they're hungry and, and they're going away to be fed. And the disciples and, and our Lord are trying to be off by themselves together, but they follow him. And so he, he goes into the boat and goes across and they still seem to, to get after him. They just always know where he is. And, and so Mark writes... We, when he disembarked and saw the vast crowd, his heart was moved with pity for them. For they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And then he feeds them. Like, what is, what is that if it's not beauty, then goodness, then truth, then unity? He meets them with beauty, goodness, truth. And how attractive is that? When you see something beautiful, are you not drawn to it? I always like to, to think and look back at the saints, in particular like Mother Teresa and, and St. John, say, uh, excuse me, Pope John Paul II, and how, how many people were attracted to them. And then you look at other celebrities, and like Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston, and, and so many people were attracted to them, but there was something with, with, with the saints, there was something being fed they, they were clearly fed by something greater and, and, and helping the people. And with the celebrity, it seemed to be the exact opposite, that they were being eaten. And so we have a tall order 
for what we need to, to provide to these people. And, but it's something we can do through the grace of God. And so I hope this has been informative. I hope this has been a, a good talk for you. This is really how I think we move forward as a Christian people and really as people, how we're going to move together. Because no matter if you're Christian or not, we're, we need to move back to God. God made you. God made you whether you believe in him or not. And, and it's, it's to him who is your ultimate destiny. And so I think through the person of Jesus Christ, we're blessed with the way home. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deacon Michael. Um, we can take a few minutes uh, if you want coffee or tea or anything. It's out there, and then we'll come back.